entering the Freedom Hut. Has the whistleblower been identified? Reports are out right now. Also, voting to start an official impeachment inquiry. Hmm. Journos fact-checking a Medal of Honor dog doctored photo. Facebook versus Twitter on political ads. And uh, punished for offensive Halloween costumes? That and more coming up. This, this is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission, or mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One make, make no mistake. America. Ready. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Say, rainy, dreary Thursday here in New York City. A great day to be hanging out with all of you, though, in the Freedom Hut, where we are kept warm and dry by our love of country. That's right. That's how we do. Uh, I want to start with something that's not the biggest news story of the day, because I'm getting sick of the biggest news story every day, which is, oh, impeachment. I'll tell you, I'll bring up to speed. I want you to know everything that's going on in the news. So I have to tell you what that means about impeachment and where we are now and all these different members of Congress giving these addresses to the American people about the sanctity of our democracies. Oh, gosh. After a while, it all, all starts to uh, to blend together. Um, but I wanted to start with something that's a little different than that. Why do you watch or listen to this show? It's a question that probably comes up whenever you turn it on, uh, whenever you start thinking about who, who you listen to, who you spend your time with. I would hope that one of the reasons, I'm, I'm hoping there, there are many reasons, you learn stuff, you enjoy the show, I certainly love doing it, but I'm also a pretty normal person, meaning that I have not been ideologically brainwashed in a way where I can't find anything funny, I can't say anything nice about the other side. I, I, I try to approach all of this like a normal human being would. And that's not the case with much of the media. Many of you have probably already picked up on this, but the journos, as we like to call the journos class, uh, have been broken in the era of Trump. They have no longer been able to hold on to any professional integrity, any sense of decency, or even a sense of humor. They are now abnormal as compared to the American people because nothing is funny to them. Everything is, oh, does this hurt Trump? Is this something that will be politically useful to my side? Uh, and I would think that after a while, anybody who is a reader of the New York Times, the Washington Post, or watches CNN would think, wow, all these people are kind of nuts. They're just not normal. There are problems here. Uh, I bring you a photo and hat tip Daily Wire for this fantastic photo. For those of you who are listening and can't see it, I can just describe it to you. It is Conan. We're calling we're calling him Conan the Barkarian in here, which I think is kind of fun. The Conan movies don't really hold up all that well. There are a few great lines and a few great scenes, but I'm not sure that they're going to be in the in the pantheon of all time greats. Uh, but Conan the Barkarian, or Conan the Belgian Malinois, that was part of the raid to take out Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Uh, there's a, a Photoshop meme, a Photoshopped meme that the Daily Wire put out of this dog, Conan. Uh, or do we say Conan? Because I know it's Conan O'Brien, but I always felt like it was Conan the Barbarian. Uh, they put out this photo and 
they also then took a photo of President Trump um, putting a Medal of Honor on an actual Medal of Honor recipient. And they made this. It's a funny meme. Okay, you see this and there is no way this is the equivalent in terms of the realism of the memes that are out there of uh, George Bush on the back of a velociraptor with an American flag sticking, you know, sticking off the back of the raptor and uh, machine guns in each hand or uh, you know, Ronald Reagan flying around with an AR-15 in each hand uh, on the back of, an Amer- of a bald eagle. I mean, those funny memes that are out there. This was a funny meme. Not a single adult in America looked at this and thought, oh, wow, the president of the United States is putting a Medal of Honor on a dog right now. Uh, Not a single person thought that. And not a single person beyond that, I would I would think. Would take offense to this or or think that they need to do a fact check of it. But my friends, we live in stupid times. And the journalist class is in full-on disintegration and disarray. And that's why we have people like uh, Steve Herman at Voice of America who tweeted out the following about a photo, a doctored photo, a photoshopped of Conan, the Belgian Malinois from the Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi raid getting the Medal of Honor for President Trump. Steve Herman tweeted out, I've requested details from the White House on this photo. There was no such canine event on today's POTUS schedule, but there's a Medal of Honor ceremony set here for later today for an active duty Green Beret. Oh, oh, hmm. Make sure you make sure you get us all the facts on that one. Make sure you let us know. Jim Acosta, who is is really in a class by himself for vain, stupid anchorman style from the movie. I mean, anchorman. You know, he's the guy who really would read from the teleprompter. I am Ron Burgundy. But CNN thinks that he's a great journalist. Oh, he's doing such great stuff over there. Really brings a lot of insight and integrity to the position. The New York Times tweeted out President Trump on Wednesday shared a photograph from 2017 altered to show him placing a medal around the neck of the dog injured in the raid that led to the death of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the Islamic State's leader. Thank you for that fact check, New York Times. So very, very important. Jim Acosta tweeted out, a White House official said, quote, the dog is not at the White House. Oh, thank heavens. I'm not exaggerating this. The New York Times did two stories on this meme. Okay, the, the premier liberal newspaper in the country two stories on this meme they had a couple of reporters on it and there was even an an effort among some of the journos to suggest that this was disrespectful because this is one of the favorite lines of attack against trump that he's disrespectful to wounded veterans that he's meanwhile every veteran that i've ever spoken to and i speak to a lot of them thinks that president trump is great with with a couple of exceptions who happen to be Democrats in the public eye who serve. But other than that, every veteran that I just meet and talk to is always like, President Trump is doing a great job. I'm just, I'm not saying that that's scientific or that's based on any polling data or anything. It's just my perception of it. Media, though, always trying to convince us that veterans don't like Trump. Um, yeah. Ask a door kicker. Ask somebody who's on the front line, tip of the spear, 
how they tend to feel about this president. I would I would offer you that for door kickers, not for people who are I mean, I was an intelligent civilian, but not for people who are in the rear with the gear. The door kickers, you probably would have 75 to 90 percent of them supportive of President Trump. That's just my estimate. That's just a guess. But that's what I would think. Um, but there were people who were suggesting that this was disrespectful, a meme that was hilarious to any normal person, which is, again, why I said I, I do a show where I do a lot of research and bring some background, but I'm a normal person. I'm not one of these journos. I don't care that I'm never going to be invited to the Columbia Journalism Review banquet or, you know, I'm not going to get invited to you know, Jeff Zucker's birthday party or something on a yacht somewhere. Like, I, I don't care. I don't want to be around those people. I don't respect those people. I don't care. And I think that normal people generally take that opinion. People who have not been propagandized to the point where they can't separate out their politics from just being a person. Uh, but they wanted to start this meme that or start this story that the meme was disrespectful. The problem with that is that the actual Medal of Honor winner that they cropped out of the photo to put the dog in thought it was hilarious. Went on the record. He's like, yeah, that's really funny because he's also not just a hero, a true hero, but a normal person. Normal people across the country all recognize that this was a funny joke. The journalists did not think it was funny. The journalists wanted to track the story down, wanted to find answers. How could the white... Is this fake news? The president sharing a meme of a dog getting the Medal of Honor. I don't know. I really hope they chase down whether Ronald Reagan really flies around on the back of a velociraptor with bazookas in each hand. I think, th I think they need to get us the answers we deserve on that one. The media has become beyond parody. You cannot trust them. You should not trust them. I hope you know that at this point. There are some people in the media you can trust. There are even some organizations that I'd say, by and large, you can trust. But the mainstream media, the 90% of journalists that hate Trump, that hate Republicans, that hate or that hate the Republican Party as it is right now, uh, you cannot trust them for anything. I mean, I used to say I would read the New York Times just so I could uh, have the food reviews and, and the cultural stuff. But even now, that's all woke that's all social justice infused. No, nothing escapes this mindset. I really do think that liberalism in this country, leftism, has turned into a mass delusion. And the sufferers of this delusion have no escape from it now. It, it pervades every aspect of their lives. It is in everything and all of the above uh, malady. And with that, why don't we now take a dive together into impeachment! which I have been telling you for, I think, two years was going to happen, and now it is happening because we know the Democrats are crazy, and this is all a sham. Let's get to it. Look, I, I'm not going to question the patriotism of any of the people who are coming forward. Uh, the action is in the House now. But what do you make of these allegations? I, I said I'm, I'm not going to comment on the merits of what's going forward. We're watching what happens in the House. I don't think Mitch, I don't know. I don't know if he really understands the gravity of what's going on here. Or maybe he just still doesn't like Trump and is doing a little bit of fence sitting. As we go into the day of the, the vote and producer Mark, right, the votes already, has it already happened? Yeah, it's already happened. So they voted they voted to have an official impeachment inquiry. Before it was the pre 
official impeachment inquiry, which I think should raise some very interesting questions about, well, under what authority then were they bringing in witnesses and putting people under oath and just because they felt like it? Okay. Uh, They really are just making this all up as they go along. Um, So Mitch says he won't. And remember, the Senate's going to play a very important role in all this. How does the Senate handle and therefore how does leadership Mitch McConnell handle an impeachment that will come from the House? They will vote. They will have articles of impeachment. They will vote in favor and they will push it on for a Senate trial. That's going to happen. I have almost no doubt in my mind. I mean, I'm 95 percent certain that this will make its way through the House into a Senate proceeding. And theoretically, that Senate proceeding could remove the president of the United States in an election year. You know, we all act under these assumptions that, well, things will just more or less continue as they are. I mean, this is uh, people talk about this as black swan theory or fat tail theory, which is when you look at graphs of probability. What are the chances of a low probability, high impact scenario? And right now, any kind of removal in the Senate would certainly be very, very low probability. It would be enormous impact, however. And it is worth remembering that even putting this close to a removal, even getting to that stage of the process, is such an abuse of what is supposed to be happening here, of what the real intent uh, is that the founders, uh, of the founders. This is a political dispute that now the Democrats are trying to use process once again. They're so inept at making political arguments to the American people because their ideas are now just bonkers level bad. I mean, Medicare for all is a crazy idea. It's a bad idea for America. Okay. Open borders is a bad idea for America. Abortion at all nine months of a pregnancy, including the last day and and after bad idea. These are all things that they won't be able to sell to 51% of the voting population. They just won't be able to do it or enough votes that they would win the electoral college. And so they're always looking for these other ways these other schemes, these artifices that they can use in order to subvert this president. And you ask, okay, well, at what point, at what point do the people revolt against this? I mean, yesterday I asked you, when does California recognize that, and enough Californians recognize that the state has made terrible decisions, people are really suffering, and it is on a steep decline as a place in this country. Entire state, really, with obviously some exceptions, I'm sure. When do independent voters undecided? Because I, I can't even speak to Democrats anymore on this stuff. They've the overwhelming majority of Democrats that I try to talk to about this know that we are we are so hyper polarized. You know, you're either on my team or on the other team. And they are willing to justify anything in order to prevent Trump from being president for four more years. One thing they haven't really considered, by the way, also in this whole mess that we are seeing right now, what would happen if they were successful in removing this president? Do do they really think that the movement that Trump represents would just go away? Do they think that the faith in the elites would return, that the media would once again have credibility with a majority of the American people? One part of this, and this is where you get into the psychology of the anti-Trump left and just anti-Trump in general, because as we know, there are anti-Trumpers on, or at least theoretically on the right, many of them still. 
we're not going back to a pre-Trump era. I think they haven't come to grips with this yet. There's not going to be a, oh, politicians come from this class that the media approves and says are okay, and there are certain ways they can talk and certain ways they can communicate. And you're not allowed to venture outside of that or else there will be consequences. At, at what point will they come to understand that those are not the rules that we're going to play by anymore? That Trump has shown us, he has exposed so much of the underbelly of the ruling class in this country. We do have a ruling class in America comprised of people from the media, academia, uh, high-end financial services, and they like the system as it has been, and they want certain people who also come from these elite institutions, these colleges where you know now it doesn't even, where you go to school, I can't tell if someone's smart or not based on where they go to school, and anyone who thinks they can doesn't know what they're talking about. But there, there is this class structure that exists. And what Trump has done is show us that there are many, many people who want to pretend that they have competence when what they really just have are credentials. This is true inside and outside of government. It's true with politicians as well. Who will ever forget Nancy Pelosi, a master legislator? No, Nancy Pelosi is a self-interested uh, left-wing ideologue who will do whatever she has to do at any point in time to maintain and wield power. It's really like having the, the you know, the, the instincts of a mafia boss, but in the United States Congress. Oh, can I say mafia boss? They call Trump a mafia boss all the time. Are, are, we, are we allowed to use that one too or no? Un unacceptable. House Democrats released their much-hyped resolution, which was advertised as bringing fairness and due process into Speaker Pelosi and Chairman Schiff's closed-door partisan inquiry. Unfortunately, the draft resolution that has been released does nothing of the sort. It falls way short, way short. Yeah, of course the process is going to be preposterous. And I just hope that Mitch McConnell, the best thing in my opinion that he could do going forward would be when this is passed on to him in the Senate, it should just be dead on arrival, just done. Just just they should show through the process maximum disrespect for the manipulations of the process that have taken place in the House of Representatives under Nancy Pelosi and Adam Schiff. They should just shut this thing down as fast as they can and learn a lesson from Trump here. They do not want you. Uh, they, they do not want to be fair. The Democrats do not want to play nice. They're not looking to. Make a case. I, I, I see all these reports about, oh, why aren't Republicans turning on Trump? Why aren't uh, Democrats are surprised that Republicans aren't turning on Trump over the Ukraine phone call? They, they really think that Republicans are going to turn on Trump over, over that? Over a thing that put everything else aside, a thing that did not happen and that would not have been illegal even if it did happen. They think the president of the United States should be removed from office for that? I would ask rhetorically, are they serious? But unfortunately, the answer is yes, they are serious. Um, I, I, I sit here, jaw agape, wondering what it's going to take for... And I, I certainly hope that there will be a moment of... Uh, retribution, politically speaking. There'll be a, a real backlash that comes from all of this.
And uh, I also hope that there will be some in the media who are held to account. I mean, here's here's just here's one example. This guy, uh, Joe, Joe Scarborough, who I, I still to this day, I've never met anybody. And I know a lot of libs, a lot of leftists. I've never met anybody who likes this show. I think that the head of NBC and like a few dozen of his Hamptons and golf buddies like it. And that's probably because I know the audience numbers have never been big. Uh, it's considered an elite influence show, but I mean, they don't even get into the whole, you know, Joe left his family, Mika left her family. They were on air. They weren't telling people. I mean, there was a lot of stuff there that everyone just sort of said, okay, I mean, fine, whatever. Uh, but Joe Scarborough takes this line that Republicans who won't go along with impeachment. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll let, I'll let Joe say it himself. 16. Everybody knows. Republicans know. The White House knows. There was a quid pro quo. It was there. So the more the president denies that quid pro quo, the more he assures himself that he's going to be impeached. Now, the president, of course, and Republicans were talking about how unpopular this impeachment inquiry would be several weeks ago, uh, a month or so ago, saying that Americans uh, wouldn't support it. It is interesting today that as we move toward the vote. Mm. The overwhelming majority of Americans in poll after poll after poll they don't like support you. this impeachment inquiry. And really, they agree with Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats. So we'll see what Republicans want to not only be on the wrong side of history here, but also want to be on the wrong side of the American people. And the more people that come forward and testify, it just becomes impossible to debunk what happened. So it, mm -hmm. it's it's very questionable as to why they, the Republicans keep going here. It's Still just, ahead. It's a personality cult or just blind loyalty. It's still uh, and the more people who come out and say this, I just, oh, good heavens. You know, I mean, I was speaking to my gardener and my chauffeur, and they're just up in arms about what Donald Trump is doing. Uh, in, the, in the helicopter to the vineyard, the pilot told me, oh, gosh, it's just, we need impeachment. Who, who, who listens to these people? Based on what? I, I, I still... They were buddy-buddy with Trump when it was good for them. And now that they weren't in the inner circle anymore, they've gone all in scorchers, both of them, against Donald Trump. They're the Scaramucci's of MSNBC. You know, the mooch. I remember the mooch at Fox. You know, everything the president does is fantastic. I love this president. He's amazing. He's changing America. He's incredible. I'm going to be White House communications director. It'll be fantastic. He does a terrible job, gets fired like a buffoon. And now all of a sudden it's Trump is like a fat loser, he'll say on TV. I mean, he'll say this horrible, just just attack him, attack him. Why do I want to listen to people who have no personal loyalty about personal loyalty? Mika, Joe, Mooch, any of them. Do we ever get an answer about this? No, of course not. But, he, but there's also a sleight of hand that takes place here. Poll after poll shows support for the impeachment inquiry. Well, that's because the way the impeachment inquiry is being set up, they're making it seem like it's a fact-finding mission. And so people who don't really dig into the details go, well, I, you know, an inquiry doesn't say, why don't they call it an, an investigation, by the way? Have you noticed that? Investigation would be a more accurate description of this. Why is it an inquiry? I don't think that that's something that you can just let slide. I think that there's the Democrats, the left, as we know, are obsessed with language and the control of language as a means of propaganda. 
That's why they want us to use undocumented instead of illegal alien, which is the correct legal term. That's why they want us to you know, use the pronouns that they dictate, whatever it may be, by making you say things in a certain way, they can make you think in a certain way over time. An impeachment inquiry. Hmm. They should just call it the, I just think they should call it the impeachment inquisition because that's really what it is. There is no due, there are no due process rights for the people involved or for the president of the United States himself. And yet the reason they call it that is because they want to convince people that there's something necessary. There's something fair going on here. Oh, they're just, it's just an inquiry. Don't we want the facts? We just want the facts. After the two years of the Mueller special counsel, now we need this. Another, another process of investigation against this president. You know what one of the big problems they have is? They can't really make a case against the policy in a way that's effective. They can whine and complain and say, oh, nobody has insurance. First of all, Obamacare passed. I thought that was going to solve the uninsured problem. But now Bernie Sanders is out there with 30 million, out of 30 million, it could be 300 billion. I don't even know. And numbers don't matter. But we got 30 million people don't have insurance. You know, they go into a doctor's office and they say, excuse me, but this procedure will cost a million dollars. And then the doctor says, do you have a check for a million dollars? I mean, no, this is this is not how any of it works. This is not the truth. But I really just wanted to do my Bernie impression for you. Uh, they can't win on on the policy level. They understand that going into this election, their candidates are weak. They're weak. What? Every poll, every poll. Where have you heard every poll before? By the every poll says that people support the impeachment inquiry. We are told every poll says that in a head-to-head matchup, like five of the top Democrats beat Donald Trump nationally. Why so worried, Democrats? Why so unwilling to just let the American people vote? If, in fact, what they say is true, that there's such support for the impeachment inquiry, why not accept that the American people then can cast their real votes on the impeachment inquiry come Election Day? Wouldn't that be a much more fair-minded and responsible from the perspective of protecting and supporting the institutions of this country and keeping us at least somewhat willing to have open dialogue between left and right in politics, wouldn't that be a much better idea? Trump is such a terrible politician, they would tell you. He's so awful at the job that they're afraid he'll beat them a second time, which is what we all know is going on here. They're worried, and they should be worried. Right now, you have Democrats who are able to run around with the press completely in their pocket, doing whatever they want, saying whatever they want, and... There must be a recognition that when there's finally one candidate who comes out of this primary who's going to have to stand up and deal with Donald Trump, people will be able to make a one-to-one comparison and say, the crazy person who believes in Medicare for all, including illegal aliens, I don't think that's going to fly. Elizabeth Warren, for whatever it's worth, had this to say about how she would handle President Trump in the debates. Play four, please. You don't back down from a bully. I never have and I never will. But we also have to realize Donald Trump runs his own show. And as much as we're going to let him run that show, he'll keep right on doing it. My goal is to tap into all of the Americans who are just getting tired of the Donald Trump show. It's just getting old and it's getting boring. And that's what's starting to happen. We won't get everybody. I understand that. 
But we got a lot of America, a lot more than 50% of America, that is tired of the ugliness, that is tired of the name calling, that is tired of the disgusting behavior, that is tired of the fact that we now have a president of the United States who embarrasses us around the world, who cuts and runs on allies who stood with us and fought alongside us. I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed by Elizabeth Warren out there being so tired of of not winning just i'm tired of all the thing tired of the bully she's gonna stand up to the bully she's been standing up to bullies her whole life she's also been pretending to be a native american her whole life but that didn't work out so well in the end <sighs> That's that's who you want to put in charge of the country? Somebody who's never run a business, has a a not even a rudimentary understanding of how economics really works, and who has perpetuated a racial fraud to advance herself for decades. Uh, I, I just I don't find that compelling. I don't find that compelling at all. Uh, could you imagine what they'd be saying if President Trump had failed in the ways that they all said that he would, that the economy would implode, that we would have dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. Instead, what we have is a country that's actually doing quite well. And a bunch of Democrat candidates who are flailing. And everybody knows they they don't want, the, the establishment Democrats don't want to remove their support from Joe Biden because they feel like any movement at this point will be seen as a sign of weakness but they've got to know that they're not backing the right horse in this race. And that's where Pelosi comes in. And that's where Schiff comes in, trying to do something to, to cheat a little bit, trying to do something to skew the race in their favor, the process and fairness and decency be damned. I do not know of anybody other than Donald Trump who would be able to deal with this. I really don't. The efforts to destroy him, the efforts to ruin his presidency, and the just the brazenness of so many in the media who refuse to accept that that's exactly what they're doing. That's what they've been doing all along. Why can't we just be honest about this? Why can't they be honest about this? No, instead we have people telling us that the country will be so much better if we just give Elizabeth Warren the, give her the reins of government. She'll make sure that those fat cats pay for everything. Uh, she reminds me of a librarian in high school who really took a particular pleasure in giving those fines when you didn't give the book back in time. <laughs> Young man, that'll cost you. That'll cost you two bits. Two bits. It's a that book was three hours late. What if one of your classmates wanted it? Soon to be the leader of the free world, everybody. Maybe. Do we see largely that it's the global south and communities of color that may be bearing the brunt of the initial havoc from climate change? Without a doubt. Without a doubt. And in terms of, of that wealth, the people who are producing climate change, the folks that are responsible for the largest amount of emissions or communities or corporations, they tend to be predominantly white, correct? Yes, and every study backs that up. That's a pretty stunning exchange there with uh, Ocasio-Cortez, isn't it? 
climate change, my friends, is now going to be an issue somewhat like affirmative action, where the central planners of the left want to engage in a uh, a a racial equity and 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 an issue of racial justice. Hmm. How is that supposed to work exactly? So we're going to be told that the global north, I assume she means divided by the equator north and south, and that you have pre- uh, predominantly uh, non-white communities to the south of the equator and then to the north, obviously America and, and Europe and parts of Asia where I guess people are, I don't know if that's considered the global north in the Ocasio-Cortez formulation, but people have uh, light, lighter skin. And, you know, generally speaking, uh, this is now going to be one of the things you hear. This is how climate change. This made. I thought about this because when I told you about how crazy the left is getting, they really do want us to engage in a a global redistribution of wealth because of climate change. This is Marxism beyond any. Although true true Marxism, of course, is international and was from the very beginning. But this is the redistributive mechanisms within a Marxist ideology expanded to include the entire world, which that really has not been done before that would be a first we who in the developing world have created more of the uh more more co2 which is another way of saying i mean co2 is effectively in a modern economy a proxy for economic activity but i i would like to know i'd like to ask ocasio cortez so if we meaning americans of all colors and ethnicities and backgrounds by the way and you know we or they, I guess, in Europe, in predominantly white countries, but also have people of all ethnicities and backgrounds and religious persuasions. But if we're going to be held responsible for CO2, for climate change, in a way that we then have to pay off the developing world, how does the developing world thank us for computers and antibiotics and electrical grids and electricity generation? I'm just, I'm just wondering, where does that factor into all of this? I mean, if we're going to do this social justice for the world based on CO2 emissions, does the rest of the world have to at least say thank you to the developed world, which now, of course, includes Japan and China uh, or China is kind of in its own category these days. Did they say thank you or did we just give them money after giving them and giving the whole world the benefit of the civilizational advances of America and Europe and and Japan and South Korea. But, you know, when does that factor in? Or is this only a conversation in the very narrow scope of what Ocasio-Cortez wants it to be? Somebody who, once again, I, I would not trust to run a popsicle stand somewhere. Disclosing or causing to be disclosed the identity of a whistleblower is such a breach of faith with our whistleblower laws, which are designed to see that the truth gets out. Anyone seeking the release of the whistleblower's identity is frustrating the truth and is potentially in violation of federal law. Banning the whistleblower is uh, an unpatriotic action. They shouldn't even go near that. Let me tell Nancy Pelosi something about unpatriotic. This whole scheme, and it is so obvious that it is a scheme, this scheme of keeping a person anonymous and protected in this way while leveraging whatever it is that they say as a means of political this is a a political attack there is no conduct here that requires the 
protection of the law for this person now that that conduct has been there's no retaliation they're going to face i mean let's be serious about this what's really going to happen to this person oh the president's going to fire them that's not going to happen uh that that would be counterproductive and i don't think the president would even want to go there doesn't make any sense why do we have the system that we do let's take a step back for a moment why do you have the right to, con- to confront witnesses against you? This is a, a central principle in judicial proceedings that involve one side bringing suit or bringing uh, charges against the other. Why do you have the right to confront your accusers? That must, that's, that's, there's clearly a balancing that goes on there because you are going to have people that have, the, uh, you know, that have to go through cross-examination. Perhaps they're the victim of a, of a terrible crime. They're going to have to deal with people asking them uncomfortable questions. Why do you have a right to do that? And this is central to our system. You put it up there with trial by jury and, you know, habeas corpus and, you know, some of these. But the right to confront your accusers. Um, this goes back to English common law, too. English common law being a, a foundation of justice in a free society in a country like our own. And Democrats, I mean, they don't care about English common law. They just care about power. They just care about whatever works for them in the moment. I really believe that. And the reason that you confront or you have the right to confront your accusers and why cross-examination is a part of judicial proceedings as well is exactly so you can avoid what we see happening here, where a person gets to be on offense and protected. A person gets to, you know, throw, throw missiles at the other side and doesn't have to deal with any incoming. That's why they went through this whole process. By the way, they could have leaked this to the press. There were so many other ways this could go. Why did they do this in this whistleblower proceeding? Because they're trying to use the protections from within the government. They're trying to abuse legal protections in order to wage what is an explicitly political campaign. This isn't even a whistleblower complaint, my friends, because what the president says to the head of a foreign government is not within the purview of an intelligence officer who works for the federal branch. This isn't an intelligence activity. This isn't something, this isn't, you know, we've got a kill squad somewhere that's assassinating rivals in some political race in some third world country. That would be blowing the whistle on something. This is not a, this is not a whistleblower. This is somebody says, I don't like what the president did. He's allowed to not like it. Free country, fine. But to pretend that there's something else behind this, to add this gravitas of, oh, he's a whistleblower. Now, and that, by the way, the name is out there all over the place. The name hasn't been confirmed. It's being reported all over the press that this person is uh, from within. You know, the, the reports say it's a CIA analyst who is anti-Trump and was known as anti-Trump and was a tied in with Biden, close to Brennan. Exactly what many, I mean, I guessed this from the beginning. I said, you're, you're probably talking about somebody who's an analyst from the intelligence community. This would be my guess. And is an analyst who is a clear left-wing progressive, which there are tons of, unfortunately, in the federal bureaucracy now. Because if you go to these international relations schools, if you're somebody that spends a lot of time overseas and does this, uh, you know, and has a very internationalist view of things, guess what? Places you tend to work are like the State Department or perhaps in the intelligence community. 
And beyond that, you are more likely to get ahead and advance within that federal bureaucracy if, in fact, you are left of center. It's just reality. It was true. It was true when I was in the CIA. So we haven't. This guy's identity is not confirmed yet. They're going to fight having to confirm it because once they do confirm or if they confirm his or his or her, I don't know. I don't know who the I don't know who the whistleblower is. And people, please stop. Stop, you know, sending me emails saying, you know, who's the whistleblower? I don't know who the whistleblower is. All I know is what I read in the newspaper and what I'm seeing now, too. Uh, and uh, the name is out there if you want to see the name that is being reported as. And also the pr- profession is it's reported that it's a guy and it's a, somebody from within the uh, CIA uh, analytic offices, analytic cadre. Is that true or not? I don't know. But it certainly isn't surprising if that is true. Because who would want to go through this process other than somebody who's a a deeply anti-Trump partisan? Uh, Why would someone take this on? Uh, Oh, we're going to be told it's because of patriotism, right? But mm, no, sorry, you're going to tear the country apart. Tear the country apart through this impeachment process and and heaven forbid some some Republicans, because there are some Senate Republicans who are basically Democrats who just want to win in more red states. is it theoretically possible that the president could be? I mean, of course, it's theoretically possible. I think it's probably a one in a thousand shot that the Senate would remove him. But we don't know. You, know, you don't know. Who knows what the press will come up with tomorrow? Um, but the whistleblower, there's no surprise here. And the, the pretense that this person has to has to be protected, the identity has to be protected. And, oh, there could even be legal ramifications against people that disclose the identity. Well, the, the identity is all over the Internet right now. So. I don't, I don't know what that means. They're going to go after they're going to go after the millionth person to disclose the identity. Is that how they're going to play the game? But but taking it back to first principles of English common law or some of the first principles that we have in our own system. Given that confronting your accuser can result in that person subject to an uncomfortable circumstance and public public retaliation and. Why is that a part of our system? Because ultimately our system is meant not to just be a system ripe for abuse by partisans. Our system is meant to get to the truth. We are meant to find out what really happened, what was what really was said, was a law broken or was some, did something happen the way that is alleged? The system is meant to get us justice. In fact, we call it the justice system sometimes, though it certainly doesn't feel like it sometimes. And... That's why we have the right to confront your accuser. Why we went from the whistleblower must be heard from uh, in the Congress to, oh, no, 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 no need for a testimony. We're not idiots. Although the Democrats are assuming that there are enough idiots or enough people that just a better way to describe it is they just are apathetic. They don't care. But the assumption that they operate under is that there are enough people who won't care that they can get away with this that they can get away with pretending that now the whistleblower does not need to be heard from and that this wasn't a scheme and a scam all along, that Adam Schiff has not been trying to work with people behind the scenes. I think we'll find out that there are some very close associates of people like Brennan and Clapper and others who were involved in this whole process, who think that the government has bestowed on them better judgment than the American people, not remembering in this whole process that the American people are the serving the American people and the desires and interests of the American people is in fact why anybody has any power at any federal agency or institution. 
It's not to exert their own whims. It's not to put their hand on the scale for a favored candidate or one person or another. That's not what's supposed to happen. But here we are being told that it is a, a sacred, a sacred obligation to protect the identity of the whistleblower when I think we all know that this has been a scam and a sham from the very beginning. Nothing that I tell you seems to turn out to be off base here, does it? It's a Democrat colluding with Schiff beforehand. I'm sure they're going to find out more about this person's uh, politics. There was political bias, according even to the inspector general, when they put forward the initial report. None of this is surprising. But it also reminds me of something that has come up a few times in my life in media, where companies, corporations, they'll always just quietly say this, but they will say, liberals boycott. Liberals, because they're so emotionally invested in their politics, are much more likely to take aggressive economic action against a show that's conservative, a person who's conservative, whatever it may be, than conservatives. Conservatives just have gotten used to, and I think it's because we have much less cultural dominance in the media and in entertainment media in particular. Conservatives gotten used to just living with things that they don't necessarily like or agree with, but they, they're adults about it. Liberals want cancel. Liberals want you're gone, you're done, you're shut down, you can't talk. And they take action based on that. Well, I think we've also seen that within the federal government, conservatives like me, when I worked for the CIA, it, it would never have occurred to me to undermine the commander in chief as a CIA officer when I was working. And I did work for a time for Barack Obama when he was president of the United States. It would never have occurred to me in a million years. And I don't believe it would have occurred to any of my fellow conservatives who work in the intelligence community, the CIA and elsewhere either. But libs... The crazy libs that used to walk around saying that President Trump is a moron. I'm, I'm sorry, President Bush, rather, back when I was President Bush is a moron. He's a war criminal. He can't, this was in the CIA. Some of them very senior people. You don't you don't think that they might take it upon themselves to. Sure enough, culturally, the left feels comfortable taking extreme actions. Based upon their political impulses, we just don't do this on the right. I don't, I don't know if the answer is to start being as shrill and crazy as they are or to try to convince them to stop being so shrill and crazy, but they boycott, we don't. They deep state, we don't. It's just the way it goes. We got Facebook versus Twitter on political ads. This is one of the more interesting debates to come out of Silicon Valley in a little while. You have uh, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey who has now announced the position that Twitter, a platform that I find very useful for my job, actually, it's a very quick, quick hit way to see opinions and chase down news stories. And uh, But it tends to be liberal dominated, not just in the user base, but also, of course, as a company, as is Facebook. But, but Mark Zuckerberg has become a little bit more libertarian recently. I've noticed a trend toward protecting free speech from him. But right now you have this two-track uh, approach or these this divergent approach from Twitter and from Facebook because Twitter says that they will not take political ads and that political messages should be earned. Essentially, you 
tweet something that is important in politics and people retweet it or not, they share it or not. Whereas in Facebook, you can pay for your political ads. The reason that Zuckerberg has come under all kinds of scrutiny from the left here is because he has said, look, we're, we're, we have fact checking and we and independent fact checkers for things that we run on the platform, but we're not going to play the game of determining what political advertisements run and don't run and we will take political ads. The left is up in arms about this because they won't admit this, but they got used to dominance on the major social media platforms, especially in the last 10 years or so, that they knew was always favoring their messages, always favoring them in search, in reach, in distribution, whether it's Google or Facebook or Twitter or YouTube, all of them and more. Snapchat, which does anybody over the age of 15 use Snapchat? And I'm amazed that Snapchat is still around, but I don't know. I don't even think producer Mark is young enough to use Snapchat. Do you do you Snapchat? I do. See, I always think that this is a flawed logic because it's supposed to disappear, but it doesn't really disappear. No, like now people you, take now people you think that they can take own, naughty yeah. photos and Snapchat it disappears. Eh, it still exists. Yeah, now it stores it automatically. Actually, oh really? Yeah, yeah on so your I'm own. I'm glad phone. that they got rid of that yeah. in people's minds because people for a while thought I'll take a photo of anything. Eh, eh. Well, you can screenshot it. Yeah, well, that's that, that too. Yeah, yeah. I stay. I don't. I don't, I don't Snapchat. And then, also, people. The whole thing about oh, like let me look like a, a rabbit or something in my. Who wants to take photos of themselves? That's like fun if you're like with your three-year-old like nephew. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say, I mean, fine. Yeah, but this, well, Snapchat's for little kids. Instagram's for the big boys. So, oh, Instagram. That was another one I forgot to mention. But that's owned by Facebook. So, the left is upset at Zuckerberg because they want there to at least be the possibility of exerting pressure externally and counting on internal political bias at Facebook, so that when a Republican candidate runs an ad, it's more likely, it's it's a case-by-case thing, it's more likely to get shot down as not true. But we know Democrat ads, just because of the way that they make noise and whine and complain and can count on all the crazy libs who work in Silicon Valley and work for Facebook, when a Democrat wants to run an ad, the chances are that it'll be fine. And to this, I keep saying, okay, for, for a Republican who wants to run an ad that says, uh, there are only two genders. What would Facebook do there? What would the expectation be for a Republican who wants to run an ad that the special counsel was a political hatchet job and the president, no charges were brought against the president and the president was exonerated? Are they going to say that's false because, well, there he wasn't fully exonerated in the report, but he's kind of, yeah, but exoneration is a subjective judgment in that context so so facebook is going to get in the game of trying to determine what is normal political assessment and judgment versus what is beyond the pale i'm sorry i don't think so i don't think so that's a bad idea uh twitter doesn't want to take money for political ads all right fine I, i one of the problems that twitter has is that it's just monetization has become more is more of an issue for them than it is for facebook to begin with Um, But I also understand the Dorsey position because he probably people are saying that he's poking Mark Zuckerberg and maybe there's some truth to that. Uh, But I think beyond that, he just doesn't want to be in the game of trying to call these ball uh, uh, of trying to call balls and strikes. And his way of avoiding that is to say, we're just not taking any ads in politics where, you know, we're, we're not taking anybody's money for political ads. 
So these are sort of two different approaches. I think both of them have their merits, actually. I mean, I like the Zuckerberg approach a little bit more, um, but I think that Dorsey and Zuckerberg understand that there is a desire on the left to have this nod and a wink. You know, we know you guys are being neutral, but wink, wink, you're not really neutral. You're supporting truth and social justice, and and that means Democrat stuff. I mean, you know, I mean, yeah, sure, you'll let the you'll let the Republicans slip some stuff here and there, and but really, you're all about truth and social justice, and you know, th- this is the way that it has been, uh, and this is also why these social media platforms have gotten kind of a wake up call, where it has become clear to them, or it has become more clear that they can't just engage in, you know. Sometimes they're a platform. Sometimes they're a publisher. Sometimes they decide what content goes up. Sometimes they're just a free-for-all utility. That's not going to work either. They need clear rules of the road or else people are going to start establishing their own social media platforms to compete with them. And that would be their worst nightmare because ultimately user adoption is really the single most important thing for any of these platforms. And if the right decided to leave en masse, that'd be a problem. I don't know why I said that kind of French. Oh, I mean, I'd spelled French. En masse. But I could have said en masse, I guess. Instead of en masse, Justin Trudeau style. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals is, uh, well, just the Ninth Circuit and the federal judiciary in general, is a place where there are a lot of bad judges. Ninth Circuit, people call it the Ninth Circus. Uh, The Ninth Circuit is a place where the hashtag resistance judiciary often decides that President Trump is not really the president, doesn't really have the powers of the president, and they have been subverting him, stopping him, sabotaging him at every op- at every opportunity. Uh, the most recent interesting happening around the Ninth Circuit has to do with a judicial nominee. President Trump nominated Lawrence Van Dyke to be on the Ninth Circuit. Uh, and as it turns out, this did not go smoothly, in part because of a letter from the American Bar Association, which I will have you know, even before this case came up, it was well known that the American Bar Association is because lawyers are now predominantly liberal, left wing. Lawyers are predominantly uh, Democrats. Not all of them, obviously, a lot of very smart conservative lawyers, a lot of conservative lawyers across the country. But the law profession, go, go to any law school in the country now and you will have you will find uh, law professors who are practically communists teaching the law. It's insane. I mean, Elizabeth Elizabeth Warren's out there teaching the law to kids as if she has so much to, wisdom to impart on them. Um, what Lawrence Tribe also had the dumbest tweet I've seen in a long time. He's a professor, I think professor emeritus at Harvard Law School and is treated as though he's a serious mind, a serious intellectual. And when President Trump uh, said that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi died like a dog. Lawrence Tribe of Harvard Law School wanted to know, and I'm not kidding, why President Trump had so much hostility to dogs. Teaching the next generation of elite lawyers, folks. A moron. All right. Back to uh, Van Dyke. They say that Van Dyke is not qualified for the Ninth Circuit. This is a hit. This is a smear. Just a little bit of background on, on Van Dyke. Uh, courtesy of my friends at National Review. He graduated magna cum laude from Harvard Law School, served as an editor of the Harvard Law Review, clerked for Judge Janice Rogers Brown in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, 
launched his uh, appellate career, served as both the Solicitor General of Montana and Nevada, where he oversaw every important case affecting those states. He has argued over 20 appeals in the federal circuit courts, most in the Ninth Circuit, and has been the counsel of record on 28 briefs before the United States Supreme Court. He's one of the preeminent uh, appellate litig- litigators you'd find anywhere. But not, not up there with the judges of the Ninth Circuit who are overturned more than any other. It's the most liberal circuit in the country or overturned more than any other uh, similar appellate division. And we get into the why here. The ABA, American Bar Association, said he's not qualified. Turns out their chief evaluator for Van Dyke is a Democrat who was a trial attorney in Montana who donated to Van Dyke's political opponent at one point in Montana. And as you dig deeper into the record here, you find out that in the evaluation, quote, uh, whom did Davenport rely upon in writing? Remember, this is the American Bar Association evaluator of Van Dyke. And this, I'm just taking you through the process of how they smear people now, how the left plays the game. Why do they play so dirty? How do they play so dirty? This is a good example of it. Ruin good people because you, you don't like their politics. Smear them, undermine them, say they have no character, say they're bad, say they're lazy, say they're racist, say they're homophobic, whatever you have to do. Anything goes. This is how Democrats do it. When was the last time you had a liberal judge who was smeared in this way? I mean, you know, if you want to really know about how easy it is for liberals, go read a Sotomayor opinion on the Supreme Court and just think to yourself, wow, this person's on the Supreme Court. Not as hard to get on the Supreme Court as I thought. But Davenport, who is the chief evaluator here of, uh, of, of Van Dyke, said the quote, uh, we can safely assume that at least one person she interviewed was Michael Black, uh, given her reference to 600 pages of publicly produced emails she used in the report. Black was the chief of the Civil Division Bureau of the Montana Department of Justice and publicly opposed Van Dyke when he ran for the Montana Supreme Court, launching personal attacks against him. After Black came out against Van Dyke in 2014, he told the Great Falls Tribune, Black had a long sort of mysterious vendetta against me. I'm not sure why. Black unsuccessfully sought a seat himself on the Montana Supreme Court, applying for an appointment in early 2014. So you have left-wing people with axes to grind who are at the center of an American Bar Association report that is produced in a congressional hearing about whether or not this Ninth Circuit judge will be placed on the court or this appointee for the Ninth Circuit would be placed on the court. And then you get to the really the really ugly moment and that was that was why i think this has gotten attention today because we talk about the politics and the ideas the policies all that stuff i also have to remember there are human beings involved in all this and people like brett kavanaugh aren't just legal mind opinions on a body of judges and they're also human beings who have to go home to their families at the end of the day have to get a decent night's sleep you know, have their own aspirations and, and dare I even say, yeah, have their own feelings. They're people too. And I know this sounds a little bit like I'm talking to uh, people like we're in kindergarten or something, but it, it, it matters. You know, there's a reason why I, I always try on this show, even when somebody really deserves it, 
Occasionally people are dumb and I have to call them dumb, or at least I'll say they're being dumb. But I don't make fun of people's appearances. Uh, I do do their voices, obviously, but I don't make fun of people's appearances. And I try not to get to the level of degrading someone as a human being and just being really nasty. Because uh, that's it's not how I am. It's not how any of you are. You wouldn't. That's not how you would want this show to be. Democrats do that all the time. I mean, you look at places like the you know the Young Turks. They're disgusting. I mean, the stuff that they'll say about people is grotesque, and they're they're they're. I, I don't anybody who watches that stuff and and supports them, I don't understand. And they're just one example. But on the left, you know, whether it's Huffington Post or Slate or Media Matters. I mean, Media Matters is one of the worst organizations in the United States, in my opinion. And Media Matters is scum. But. They can act that way. It doesn't mean that we should act that way. Uh, and the process with Kavanaugh was a real reminder of just how disgraceful they're willing to be and what they're willing to say and do to humiliate and really psychologically torture a person for no crime, for no wrong, other than they don't like what they think. They don't like what they stand for. It doesn't matter that what they think or stand for may be representative of the beliefs of half the country unacceptable not gonna say it's okay that's their that's their approach that's their opinion uh, so judicial nominee Lawrence Van Dyke was being asked about this and look the guy the guy got a little uh, guy got a little emotional please play clip 10 did you say that you wouldn't be fair to members of the LGBT community I'm sorry no I did not say that I do not believe that <laughs> It is a fundamental belief of mine that all people are created in the image of God. And they should all be treated with dignity and respect. Senator. And look, that guy's in real emotional distress there. And I, I'm sure that there are leftists who are going to laugh and mock him and everything for it. Because, you know, any, any man these days who, you know, cries in public, uh, the people that don't agree with their politics will always find a way to, to try to humiliate them. I just here saw a guy who was, he was accused essentially of being an anti an anti gay bigot. That's what the Democrats were saying about them. That's what the this the Democrats writing this ABA report on him were saying. You know, they're you know he's he's a bad person. And if you've lived your life a certain way, um, if you've lived your life with respect for everybody, treated people well, and have always conducted yourself honorably, it can be. A shock. Uh, it can be a shock when you are accused of being something other than that. And when there are people who are clearly, if they're not convinced themselves, trying to convince other people at least that you're not the person that you really are, that can rattle someone. Uh, that can, and, and this is for me, bringing a lot of this back to what we saw with Kavanaugh. Uh, there's no evidence that Lawrence Van Dyke, as a Ninth Circuit judge, would be unfair to the LGBT community, that he does not like people who are gay or lesbian or transgender or anything. There's there's no evidence whatsoever to present. They just included some rumors about how, how uh, some of his colleagues thought that maybe that would happen. It's just a, a smear. I mean, imagine people that politically disagree with you getting to just air out, well, you know, he's never done anything racist, but I think this guy is just kind of racist. So he shouldn't get that job. Imagine you went in for a job yourself. And they did a background, they did a background investigation on you and they talked to people who didn't like you. And then publicly that was, that was shown to the world. And some people just said, yeah, I'm not sure that he's a wife beater, but I, but I think he's, my, might be a wife beater. Just put that out there. 
a lot of people understand that this is the nasty political world that we live in now and that judgeships are sacred to the left because it's how they can get policy done that they can't get through the democratic process of the legislature. So they feel a they feel an ownership of the judiciary as an activist body for leftist goals. And when that starts to slip away from their fingers, when all of a sudden they don't have that anymore, they lash out, they act out. Now that's that's what you are are seeing right now. That is the reality of why they go after people like Van Dyke who has an impeccable resume and is clearly qualified for the job. And the ABA is appalling in putting forward this report. But as I've said, the ABA now, I mean, these, this, is, this is now a left-wing organization. You know, the ABA, the ACLU, you, know, you look at a lot of these groups that are supposed to be nonpartisan. And anybody who knows anything and spends any time really digging into it will tell you, no, of course they're partisan. But I guess it's just a reminder that Kavanaugh is not the only casualty um, of the new left's scorched earth, destroy everybody, pull them down, tear them down approach, that there are others along the way who the left has deemed necessary for destruction. And they're willing to lie. They're willing to be disgusting and to really hurt people in the process. And it's wrong. What they're doing is wrong. What they did to Van Dyke is wrong. What they did to Kavanaugh is wrong. What they'll do to other judicial appointees is wrong and we need to stand up and say that government has never made anything better or cheaper more effective or more efficient and nowhere is that more true than in education does anyone who knows anything disagree with that betsy devos statement that government has never made anything better or cheaper more effective or more efficient and in education that has certainly been the case does anyone really want to take the alternative side of that argument argue that the government is great at cheap provision of, of services let me let, let's just walk through because this this has applications to the education system in this country which is really a form of central planning and socialism at the public school level it is we don't think of public education as socialism but it actually is socialism uh, it's certainly central planning and when you look at the spending that has gone into this over the years we have pretty poor outcomes and keep pouring more and more money into the system because as I always tell you that it's it's a jobs program for adults before it is really anything having to do with educating kids. And now I would just go to the if you look at the the breakdown of why is it that government can't produce things, services or goods cheaply and well? And the answer is that the people who are producing it are not incentivized to innovate and to go the extra mile and to do things they would not otherwise do in order to reach those goals. Of course, government doesn't produce things cheaply and efficiently and better than it does in the past. Everyone who's showing up to a government job, and I just going to say, oh, Buck, what about all the amazing public school teachers? Yes, there are people who are so invested in teaching and love teaching so much that they do. They pay for extra books and they take kids out on field trips. They pay for themselves. And those people are wonderful. And that's great and fantastic. The system, though, unfortunately, is not only staffed with those people. And that's that's for sure. And there are a lot of people in the education system, a lot of people who work with the federal government in general, who they maximize their benefit for their labor by doing the required minimum and nothing more. That's it. Do the minimum 
means that you get the most for what you put in in the government. That is not the way the private sector works at any level because there's competition and because there are benefits to doing something better than your competitors. So you want to be better than other, you know, why am I up so late at night researching and writing and doing all these things in preparation for this show? Because I want it to be the best show that you can listen to or watch anywhere, period, right? Because then there will be more audience. And yes, we make more money here in the Freedom Hut. And I am incentivized to do as much as I can to make this the best that it could be. If I was told that the money is, you know, the money is this and that's what it's going to be and the audience is the same and nothing else. Sure, maybe I love it so much that I put my heart and soul into it, but I don't know if producer Mark would have quite the same opinion of it. If the he just shook his head no. If we were told that it's this and it's that, and by the way, if you if that was centrally planned, if that was determined from on high, well then everybody would have to have the same audience, right? And the same money, which means that nobody would have much of an audience at all and nobody would make much money at all. That's basically what's going on in the public school system. It is people doing the minimum. People who are trying to keep and the Democrats are just trying to keep the political machinery going of public school unions uh, voting for them. And then they give more and more largesse and particularly benefits, long term benefits, because those are easier to hide in a budget. Oh, we're not paying teachers one hundred thousand dollars a year. We're going to give them amazing health care benefits. So for the rest of their life after they retire at fifty five or whatever and their family. But we're, we're not going to you know, talk about the salaries. My friends. You can't get around basic truths of economics and also how human beings operate, how we act. Incentives matter. Structuring. Why are we so much more wealthy than the Soviet Union? Huge country with tremendous natural resources. Why? Because the system we had incentivized people to do more and do it better. There is no incentive structure in the public school system. And there would be no incentive system in a Medicare for all uh, system either if Democrats get this. These are the basic, these are the fundamental truths that they cannot explain away and they cannot get around. And it's why their ideas on the left are bad. We recognize it's just not fair to have these athletes uh, giving the kind of time they give to their sport and not receiving any kind of compensation or remuneration, uh, particularly at a, at a time when they come from very, very poor families in many cases. But look, what you can't have is a couple of athletes on campus driving around in Ferraris while everybody else is you know, basically having a hard time making ends meet. And you can't have a setting where some schools that are in major markets or, or have big sport followings, some schools are like the honeypot and everybody, all the great athletes all want to go to those handful of schools. Then you, then you kill collegiate sports. So there needs to be some adjustment to the whole name, image and likeness approach to make sure that we don't create those problems. Well, there we had Senator Mitt Romney uh, and noted... NCAA croquet expert uh, weighing in on whether people should be paid for being college athletes. I, I want to bring in someone who actually knows something about the NCAA. We got Clay Travis back with us now, folks. He is, of course, the host of Outkick the Coverage, also the author of the book Republicans by Sneakers 2. Clay, thanks for coming back. Hey, what's up, man? Appreciate you having me. All right. So what is the like? what is the status right now of this proposal? And then I want to get into what you think should happen. But first, what are we being told about NCAA athletes could happen soon? I don't know that anything's going to happen soon, first of all. I, I, I think the uh, sort of 
argument that has been percolating and going on for some time is should you pay athletes or should you not? And the two sides kind of yell at each other. Right, college and athletes. This, right. Yeah, yeah, college athletes. And then there's this great chasm between the two, which is filled with all of the complexities involved in the decision. In other words, it's not as if one side is just going to triumph and suddenly you're going to be like, okay, you know, college athletes can be able to be paid on an unregulated basis as much as they want for their name, image, and likeness. There are a lot of different complexities here, and I actually think that we're likely going to spend the next five years to ten years in court trying to figure out exactly what the application will be uh, when we come down to the process by which these guys are going to be compensated. Because remember, we're only talking about a small handful of athletes, and we're only talking about athletes in football or men's basketball. Uh, There's no other athletes on campus that have any sort of value, and really it's only a few of them at most at some of the top schools that actually have a value. So uh, I think that is what is getting lost a lot in this. We're talking about a relatively small number of uh, players. And the big issue is, I think, and again, this is people talking over the top and not really understanding uh, the larger context. The big issue is, age restrictions that are being put in place by the NBA and by the NFL uh, that doesn't allow people to go pro at an age that they want to go pro. In other words, back in the day, if LeBron James wants to go straight to the NBA at 18, that should be a route that can be taken, right? And now you have to go to college, which is why people are all getting in an uproar and saying, well, these guys deserve to get paid. If you want to be a professional athlete, there should be a conduit by which you can get paid immediately. Uh, Same thing for college football, where you have to wait three years to be able to go pro. And uh, to me, I think that this is really intriguing when, uh, when you break it down. The best model for anybody out there who is a college sports fan is college baseball. And you don't hear anybody arguing that baseball players deserve more money because they have an open market system at 18. They can go into a draft. They can get drafted. They can negotiate, figure out whether or not they want to become a professional. If they do, they go into the minor leagues at 18 years old. If they don't, they go to college. They continue to develop their talents in college for three years and hopefully improve their draft stock, and then they can come out three years later and ideally be able to go pro, having maybe even already graduated, but at a minimum have knocked out a lot of their hours of college uh, along the way. So uh, to me, the, uh, the NFL and the NBA are inextricably intertwined here with the larger issues that arise in college, and we tend to blame the NCAA because they're a convenient battering ram uh, uh, and, uh, and whipping boy for everybody, when the reality is this is a much more complicated issue than uh, that many would uh, allow within their argument. And so just the, the, the current discussion then for these, for these collegiate athletes, it's a little different than I've heard proposals in the past or at least the early stages of people discussing should Division One athletes just get paid by the university at some level. This is yeah. more specifically to should the hyper elite within a couple of sports in the in some of these uh, NCAA uh, situations, football, basketball, should they be able to profit off of the jerseys that are sold with their names on the things? Is that is that right? Is that where this is? Yeah, that the the, the way that many people are trying to thread the needle here is by saying, well, the colleges are not going to pay because if the colleges pay, and this again goes to the complexities involved uh, in that chasm between pay or don't pay. If the college pays directly, then you likely have title nine restrictions. And for people out there who don't know, 
under Title IX, it has been applied that if a, let's say, men's football player, even if he's the quarterback and he's wildly valuable to the overall university uh, for his talents there, he can't make any more money than the average women's high diver can or than the average guy who's running the 4 by 100 on the track team. So whatever the football player gets from the school, everybody else who's on a full scholarship from the school also has to get the same thing, male or female, regardless of sport. Here, there is a uh, a hybrid model that is being advanced, similar sometimes to what exists in the Olympics, where individual athletes should be able to make money off of their individual likeness. In other words, they could get money for their autographs. They could get money to be in, theoretically, like a car dealership, billboard, all of those things. The challenge is, and I think you could probably see what might be a challenge going forward, is, well, the schools are not going to want the star quarterback to, for instance, endorse a gambling company or a liquor company, or a strip club, right? So you're going to have to create a bureaucracy by which everyone could uh, review all these contracts. Moreover, you also don't want some 18-year-old kid who's got a huge future as a multimillionaire signing away 10% of his earnings at the age of 18 because he's not sophisticated about the contracts that he's entering into. So I think at a minimum what you're going to have to create is maybe another level of bureaucracy here to apply this process by which, let's say, the NCAA said, hey, if you're going to get paid, then we have to be able to sign off on whatever you're getting paid for endorsement purposes. And I think that turns into a uh, complicated factor as well. But do you think that it is just fundamentally, I mean, at at its core, this is is it the right thing to find out a way to do this so that these basketball and football superstars and probably a couple of guys in some other sports might be breakthroughs, but in those two sports in particular that they can make money. Is this the right thing? Is it the fair thing? I'm a capitalist. So I am in favor of anybody making as much money off of their talents as they can. But as a capitalist, I recognize that the best way for these guys to make money is for them to be able to go pro. And so what I'm afraid of is you're going to have guys in college worried about a $10 bill and not noticing the stack of hundreds down the line. And this is just sort of a, uh, a messy situation to create for what should be a relatively handful of players. And the easy uh, example here is, look, we in the NBA and the NFL, they have been lazy and they have taken a free ride off of the collegiate model rather than have to create their own minor leagues. Well, right? yeah, I was going to ask so, you, I mean, if, if you're a professional, I know tennis probably better than any other yeah. sports that I follow. If you're a world-class tennis player, you're pro at like, you're basically pro at 14 or 15. Right. Yeah, look, and I mean, I, my argument has always been, we don't ask Taylor Swift, like take it outside of the world of athletics. If Taylor Swift has a great album at 16, we don't make her go to the Vanderbilt, uh, you know, university choral team. Uh, we don't ask that Leonardo DiCaprio star in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof at USC before he goes and makes Titanic. You should be able, if you have talent, like you said, in tennis, in hockey, in baseball, in virtually every sport but basketball and football, there is a direct path by which you can go pro once you reach the age of majority, sometimes even younger, right? Tennis, I mean, like you said, sometimes you got 15-, 16-year-olds. Do, wait, can I, uh, do you think some of these NCAA, t- or rather some of these teams, these universities, you know, the Ohio States, the Michigans, I don't know much about them, but I know that those are big names. Yeah. Do you think that they hide behind the scholar-athlete thing so they can keep the superstars and pretend that they're doing them a favor when really it's just about revenue for the school? No, uh, I don't know necessarily because that's the other place where people get lost, I think, is it's a, it's a good question. 
most of these schools are revenue even. In other words, they don't make money. Most of the money, you know, you have a socialistic system that is put in place here. And I think a lot of people miss this. The football teams and the basketball teams, the men's athletic programs, are wildly profitable often at these big schools. But all of the money that they make at those programs is rolled back into scholarships, by and large, for much smaller uh, programs, right, to pay for all of these other scholarships. Yeah, my fencing scholarship, for example, yes. Correct. And And they have to be even, again, for men and women because of Title IX. But the reality is the vast, vast majority of scholarship athletes playing for teams are on teams that cost schools money. And so I've always thought that there's an interesting dichotomy. You know, people say, oh, you you need to run this like a business. Well, if you were running college athletics as a business, the only two you would do would be football and men's basketball because you would lose money doing everything else. Now, maybe UConn women, uh, University of Tennessee women, women's basketball, you might be able to make a small margin, you know, literally like $100,000 a year or something. But you're talking about Alabama, Ohio State, Michigan, some of the schools that you mentioned, making 50 or $60 million in football. But that football money is what funds the entirety of the, uh, the scholarship apparatus for all of athletics. So uh, that is an intriguing question as well, is as you look down the line and think about the future, how is all that going to be reconciled? And how are you going to be able to treat people? Um, you know, if, if suddenly you've got uh, – Mitt Romney said, you know, driving Ferraris. It doesn't really bother me if a quarterback is making more money, I do wonder if there's only two guys on a football team who are making money, what does that say about the locker room? You know, if if the quarterback's making $400,000 a year because he happens to play quarterback for the University of Alabama and nobody else on the team is making more than 10, uh, you know, from a couple of autograph signings, like what does that create a power imbalance in the locker room? Does it create uh, a, a dichotomy. It also raises issues like, okay, what if that star quarterback gets benched and he's got all this endorsement money? Uh, are they going to pull the money, you know, from him for the car dealership? Uh, because then it raises a a lot of complicating factors, frankly, that right now aren't at play in college. Um, or you know, you think about something simple like Jalen Hurts, a great quarterback this year for Oklahoma, but last year he was playing at Alabama. Well, what if some car dealership at Alabama has given him a ton of money? They, they have to pull down all those billboards. They don't want the Oklahoma Sooner quarterback uh, showing up in Tuscaloosa now. So I, I think there are just a lot of complexities that haven't been worked through. And again, I don't think there are that many players that this actually involves. And I think this has turned into like a lot of issues in politics, honestly, uh, something that people would rather argue about than actually solve. Uh, we got to leave it there. A lot of interesting angles, though. Clay, thanks so much, man. Clay Travis, everybody. Outkick the coverage is his podcast. Check out his book, Republicans Buy Sneakers, too. Uh, Clay, thanks again. Yeah, I hope I didn't muddy the waters even more. No, uh, you, you, you explain the waters. We appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you, my man. Take care. Yeah, man, Clay really is squared away on all that sports stuff. He's uh, quite, an, quite an analyst of it. Uh, producer Mark and I were talking about this, and uh, I, I like to be very transparent with the team, meaning Team Buck. I... I I don't know anything about college athletics, really, other than, you know, stuff that I saw when I was in college, which was not very good or high level. You know, our teams, we're a, a tiny D3 school. It was not impressive. So I go to these other places, people at, you know, U Michigan and stuff, these stadiums hold like 100,000 people, right? Yes. This is, yeah. This is Michigan like a, holds over 100,000, like 110 maybe. That's, Alabama's huge now, Ohio State. That's astonishing. Yeah. People get that into this stuff. I, I just don't come from a place where this was – Anything that anybody really all that much, you know, we, the, the, you'd have 
like homecoming weekend for the badminton and squash teams at Amherst, you'd have perhaps dozens of people in the stands, perhaps. I mean, I, I went to a D1 school, but they didn't have a football team. So really? Basketball was the big thing. They they cut the football team in 2009 for budget cuts. Mm, interesting. I was very unhappy when I went there and found that out. Wow. What school? Hofstra. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I uh, personally, I just, I don't understand why we think that a lot of colleges should really just be minor league sports franchises. I'm just saying, I don't understand why this is, we're going to pretend like this is the scholar athlete thing, but I, I get very, I think get rid of all, I, I would get rid of all athletic recruiting be, below D1 schools, no question. And, uh, you know, you'd have to get rid of Title IX too, because as, as Clay said, there's all these financial pressure. I mean, when I, you know, when I was at Amherst, I was rowing, I rode college crew. And because of Title IX pressure, the uh, which means you have to spend the same amount of money on the men's and the women's teams, our team, we had to actually, we were a team, like school's team, but and we had, you know, tryouts and the whole thing and practice and everything else. You had to, we, we had to raise money through like bake sales for our gear. And like on the women's side, you'd have uh, at the University of Massachusetts, for example, the women's crew team, could, like Olympic level everything. And the sh those shells that you see them rowing and they can cost like $30,000. I mean, this is expensive stuff. Uh, and the men's team would have nothing. Like they'd have to raise money through bake sales and things like literally through bake sales. Uh, and it's because they spend so much money on football and basketball and then have to find ways to spend on women's sports and have as many women's sports teams. Doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I definitely knew about the amount, the same amount of teams. I didn't realize it was money as well. Yeah, spending too. I, See, I remember that. Like so. Hofstra lacrosse is really big. So like the women's team, they get set up with the big locker room and the same stuff as the men's team, same with basketball. But it's not as much for like the smaller sports, like field hockey, soccer. Like it's not as big. Yeah. So I, I have I have unpopular opinions on this stuff because I just think that college is for college as in it's for learning and i do not think that it's but ever i hear the booze from across the country everyone loves their march madness <laughs> sports like, is a part I, of college yeah but just like let people play sports don't don't do this thing of we're you know going to be recruiting from all over the country i mean they have schools that are graduating people these are pretty elite schools they'll graduate people from these different athletics programs they barely can literally barely read that, that happens. Is, that is true at the really big schools, yes. but I will say at the smaller schools, that's not true. No, of course it's not true at the smaller schools. Yeah, because no you know maybe good. that's 10, 15, 20 programs, but for the most part, they I are know, there. I for know. An I'm, I'm on my everyone. I, I can. I know no one really agrees with me on this thing. I just. I. I think school is for learning, including college and university. I don't think it's all about you know where you're where you're playing a sport, but you know nonetheless, people get really into that stuff. So I. I. I concede. That other that people love this stuff. Maybe I should start. The problem is also I don't have a college to root for. I'm from New York City. So what sport? What university here could you possibly get excited about? Columbia University. I mean, maybe the chess team. Like what sport? Basketball. You have St. John's is normally the big school. Are they good? They're supposed to be. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you could root for Hofstra. That's fine. What, what's wrong? Half strike. They have a good basketball team. Are they good? Yeah. Oh, okay. Maybe I would root for They just had a player go to the NBA last year. Well, look at that. I know. I learned something new every day. Yeah, that's. I mean, I went to a, a tiny D3 school. Anyway, it's, it's interesting to hear from Clay about this. I, I do think that if you look at other programs, if you look at European soccer, for example, uh, people start in a professional track at around, well, at some level, those of you who watch soccer, I know a lot of you are like, click. You're like, I don't want to hear about soccer, but we only got 30 seconds before I'll change it to something else i promise 
But uh, Lionel Messi, for example, I think he started playing in, a, in an organized team tied to a professional franchise at like age six or something. He was like a toddler, basically. So they have a different approach in some other places about sports. Here, we want to make people go through the whole college experience before they can go pro. I'm not sure. I don't know why you can't just go to college after you finish your professional career and have had your go and made some money. And that seems like it makes a lot more sense to me. I, I don't know. But, we, you know, we have this idea that, you know, in America, everybody needs to own a home. Everybody needs to go to a four-year college. Both of those things are only true sometimes. It's not true all the time. Let's talk about Halloween costumes, though, shall we? It's that time of year. Halloween. Well, it's actually the day. It's not even the time of year. People are going to dress up, get ready for whatever their parties are. I haven't, I'm not going to a Halloween party this year. Probably should, but I'm not. I got other things I got to do, got to work on. And I no longer, you know, it, people get to be my age and all of a sudden you see a lot less like naughty, naughty nurse and naughty police officer costumes and a lot more, you know, people trying to dress ironically as some political figure or something. I don't know. The, the costumes change when you get into your late 30s from when you're in your 20s. So it's just it's just a different a different vibe. at Hall- I'm just saying it's a different vibe at, at Halloween time. Uh, Producer Mark, are you dressing up this year? Do you do you are you a costume guy? I was going to. I had a Halloween party last weekend, then it got canceled. Uh. So we made, or my fiance made costumes, and then uh, we didn't use them. Um, Ron Swanson's the only costume that I pulled off in recent years because I do Is have that a hair, of the hair? hair for. Yeah. yeah, I have the perfect hair for it. So I did Ron Swanson a few years ago. That went very well. I got a, like a very ugly beige long sleeve collared shirt that worked sure. really well because that's kind of Ron Swanson style. What do you this a year? White, a really bad hairpiece? Uh, a white? No, I didn't mind. I just used my hairpiece. Oh, okay, you know, yeah. I just recombed the hairpiece sure. that I currently have, and. Uh, and I uh, made, made it work. But other than that, I haven't really had a good costume in quite a while. Um, and I think it's interesting. Halloween has transitioned into a holiday for adults, whereas it used to be really... When I was a kid, adults did not dress up for yes. Halloween. This was not a thing that you would... Like, my parents were not in Halloween costumes. Now, I feel like more adults dress up than kids sometimes. Penn Station is a scary place today and this weekend, last weekend, yeah. I also don't understand why people really like to get into the gory costume thing where there's fake blood everywhere. Not and, even like, scary, just like, and... you're not frightened. You're like, how are these yeah, people in gross. Penn Station? I don't know why, you know, people like to go a little too far with some of that stuff. Yeah. But the big problem, just so you know, is costume cultural appropriation. There was some uh, study out today, I think it's from Campus Reform, is that right? Where they were talking about how you... Uh, whether or not you should be, here we go, yeah, campus reform, looking at whether you should be punished, whether college kids, 51%, here you go, of American university students support punishing others who wear highly offensive costumes. Um, First of all, highly offensive costumes include what would have been considered just a normal costume even 20 years ago, right? I mean, things like people wearing... Native American garb, you know, uh, wearing a feathered headdress and, uh, you, know, no, no, you know, none of that. Not allowed to do that anymore. So we know that anything that has, of course, anything that's racially insensitive would be, would be off limits. But there's also a, a cultural sensitivity now where you can't even wear clothing from other cultures, which I think is quite strange. I, I've seen people even complain about wearing traditional East Asian dress, for example, as uh, as somehow insensitive and, and beyond the pale. And I looked up and I, I, I found, just in case you were wondering, 
Elite Daily, which I did not know was a thing until now, has a handy list of what you cannot wear on Halloween. Uh, that includes, there's some obvious ones. You don't need to be told don't, don't wear blackface, for example. That's a very, very inappropriate and bad idea. But they get into some other ones that I was not, any, any clothing that belongs to indigenous people. Hmm. No one from indigenous people. What? So like, could I wear a Viking costume though? Because they were, they're an indigenous group that still exists in, well, I guess historically they still exist in some parts of uh, Northern Europe. This was the one that I was, that also I didn't think about before. Body shaming costumes. So some of you may think, for example, that sumo wrestlers might be an acceptable costume, but I am here to let you know that according to wokeness, if you wear a sumo costume, you would be both appropriating Japanese culture and body shaming somebody whose culture you appropriated in that costume. So no more sumo suits, which then also makes me wonder, are we not allowed to do those? Aren't there those sumo contests that people have? I have a permanent sumo costume on. Producer Mark is uh, in his comedian mode today. I mean, every year when I don't dress up, I tell people I'm going as a fat guy, so I can't do that anymore. Body shaming, I don't know if... if what if I'm shaming myself? I, I, you might have to check with the, the, the powers that be on that one. All right. I don't know. I'll check with the powers. Because, yeah, they said you cannot mock anybody that is the... This is what they're worth. The antithesis of body positivity. So here they give you a helpful tip. Don't go in a fat suit. Go in a T-Rex costume. Thanks, Elite Daily. You guys are fine. My mom actually made sure that we had some great costumes when... Uh, although, wait... Is, is ninja off limits now? Can you not do ninja costume? I have some questions here. Uh, to me, it's like it, it, that's ninja is cross-cultural, crosses cultural boundaries, man. American Ninja is a very bad 80s action movie about a white dude who's trained to be a ninja. So can I be that ninja? I would just I would just wonder about this. Uh Trying to think of other costumes that would be rather, but I remember I I was uh, I think my older brother was Indiana Jones one year. That's acceptable. That was a great one because my mom even got him a little whip. Um, I think I remember this is just based on photos that I in family albums. Pretty sure I went as a knight one year, which is pretty standard. I think you're allowed to do that. Although there's a lot chivalry. Let's be honest, medieval knights code of chivalry, some mansplaining in there, some mansplaining and. The chivalric code of medieval knights is, in fact, in its own way, toxic masculinity. So, and and it was very exclusion. It, it was excluding women from the ranks of the knights. So, not woke. Medieval knights, not woke. So, I don't know if I could do that costume anymore. I don't know if that would be considered acceptable. Uh, pretty much, you can. This is just like sports teams now. The only safe thing for a sports team to be is an animal, and. I think it's only a matter of time before the PETA folks get upset about the appropriation of identity of, say, velociraptors or stingrays or, you know, cougars. Although we know cougars can have... The cougar can be a, dub, uh, a double entendre. Uh, cougar can have more than one meaning. So I'm told via Urban Dictionary. And with that, Roll call. Ain't no party like a Team Buck party, because a Team Buck party don't stop. (laughs) 
Yeah, we got Buck turned up to 11. It's time for Roll Call. It is. It is time for Roll Call, which means you get to hear all of your uh, your wonderful peers from the team weighing in on a whole bunch of things and uh, and good stuff like that. So let's uh, let's get to it, shall we? Um, uh, first up, first up in the mix here. Sorry, I was trying to pull up my. Was I speaking English before, producer Mark? I feel like I kind of faded off into, into. Oh, here we go. A guy a named Candy Coma. You're in. What did I do? You in a candy coma? A little bit. Oh. I'm gonna be hopefully gonna be in a bacon and eggs coma soon because I'm hungry and that's what I make myself when I get home. Uh, a guy named Arnie writes um, just one word that I cannot repeat on air. Arnie, right back at you, my man. Right back at you, uh, Ted writes, I hate you, and I want my hour back. Um, okay. <laughs> Ted really gets after it here. Uh, sometimes you got to read the bad ones in there, too. Bill O'Reilly used to read the uh, the hate mail on the air. You know, you sort of just roll with it. You know? Look, that means we're reaching libs, folks. We are reaching the libs. All right. Um, what do we have here? E- nope, I got a link sent to me. Yeah, we got we got some libs writing in today. Man, I must have we must have some people, some new folks watching the show. John writes, "Hey Buck, I live within the signal of WKRC, but they don't carry your show. I listen through iHeart to Talk 1200 out of Boston. Again, the last 30 minutes of your show is being preempted by a podcast unrelated to your show or topics. I dislike this. I don't understand why iHeart does this. By the way, you rock." Um, yeah, man, I, I you know I'm just I'm just doing this show. That's why I'm telling everybody, just get just guys download the podcast, subscribe to the podcast. That's the way to do it. We're this podcast is up by three Eastern every day, so you can listen whenever you like. All of you have smartphones, just put it on in your car. Just download the Buck Section Show and podcast. Tell people about it. You know I, I love our affiliate stations, but sometimes we get preempted. Sometimes things happen. So even if you're listening on an affiliate station. Uh, subscribe to the podcast so you just always have that option. So if for some reason you miss something or if you're late to, to turn on the radio, you can listen. What's up, producer Mark? And just uh, in case you really do want to listen to it live, there's a Buck Sexton channel on iHeart. Yeah. Which there's is a, Buck all the time. There's, there's this 24-7 Buck on the iHeart radio app, so you can also do that. And you wrote, you rock. Thank you very much, man. I appreciate that, especially after Libs writing me mean things. Why do the Libs write the mean things? Libs. Libs, please stop being mean. Uh, let's see what we have here. Oh, we got a lot of people sending in, a lot of people sending in clips. My man, TJ! Um, I know you used to be cordial with the drinking bros, guys. They brought up the case of Green Beret Sergeant First Class Richard, uh, Stacecal attempting to sue the Department of Defense for medical malpractice, and apparently Lindsey Graham opposes... People like him being able to sue the military. Have you heard about this? Thoughts, TJ? I got to be honest with you. I don't know the case at all, but I will. I will check it out. Um, thank you for bringing it to my attention. Uh, let's see. We have, we're, we're doing a lot of off of Facebook today. I don't want. I don't want to ignore our friends who write in via email. Remember, it's teambuck at iheartmedia.com. That is how we get that party going. 
uh, and it's opening right now on my thing. So here we go. Nicholas, podcast listener. So I'm a couple of days behind, but you were talking about there being a show that shows polygamy to a mainstream audience. It's called Big Love. Bill Paxson was in it. Yeah, no, I, but that's Big Love. I didn't see it, but my understanding is it's a show about polygamy, but it's not a... I, I actually I can't say this because I don't know, but I'm assuming that it wasn't trying to say, oh, polygamy is totally normal. It was just saying that there was right. There's a difference between doing a show on Pablo Escobar about drug cartels and saying, hey, drug cartels are totally normal. Not not to compare polygamy to drug cartels, but you know what I'm saying. There's normalizing it versus just covering it. Uh, Guile writes, hey, Buck, my pronouns are she, he, it. Oh, wow. My friends just say them together and real fast. On Friday, a youngster named Noah chimed in about minimum wage. Something no one seems to understand is that when minimum wage goes up, the wages for the rest of us usually don't. Then the retailers raise the prices because they need to pay them or fire them. But the rest of us above the minimum only see the higher prices so our dollar won't go as far. Also, our retirement funds will not be enough. Idiots think this is great. Don't seem to realize that in a few months, the minimum wage will only make it as far as it did before the wage hike. The only difference will be the middle wage earners will now be closer to the bottom. This does nothing but separate the rich and poor further. P.S. Um, okay, the P.S. is for me only. But thank you very much, my friend. Uh, Kathy. Buck, I seem to remember you recall. Or <laughs> I seem to remember you recall. No, I seem to recall. That you have a thing for Jessica Biel. Are you watching her series Lime, whoops, Limetown on Facebook Watch? Thoughts so far? Um, I had a thing for Jessica Biel. We're the same age, I think. And uh, she was my like high school crush. Oh, but she had to go marry international superstar and, you know, 100 millionaire Justin Timberlake. Whatever. Does he have a freedom hunt? I don't think so. Uh, he could probably buy a lot of freedom hunts, actually. Create a freedom mansion or... 20 um but yeah no she was when she was mary camden in seventh heaven and she was so i was also in high school and she was playing a high school student then big big into the jessica beale fan club uh also is there any way you could have the date of the show on the screen with you pluto does not give the viewer any way of knowing that the show is today's or a previous show i miss commie bear kathy in georgia oss uh, I'm not watching Limetown on Facebook Watch. Can we do something that would have the date of the show on Pluto? Well, I'm saying this now on the Pluto show so the Pluto producers can hear me uh, or the f people who run the first. And maybe we could put a little watermark in the bottom. I don't know, producer Mark, would that be a pain for us to do or for someone to do? That's above my pay grade. That's above your pay yeah, grade? I do radio only. That's true. He's a radio oh. guy. Well... The, the the first team has heard about this, so they can decide so, whether we can do that or not. My knowledge of television tells me that it probably is a fairly easy thing for them to do. I think so too, but you know, I don't want I don't want to commit anyone to anything because I don't know the stuff about the things. Um. Uh. All right. Let's see what we got here. Uh. Hold on a second, Buck. Oh, not for radio. My bad. Not for radio. Not going to read. See, thank you. Please, always, guys. If it's not for public public sharing, you got to put it at the top. Once or twice, fortunately, we were taping the roll call when this happened. But people wrote something, and it was really interesting and intricate. And then I get to the bottom, it's, do not share this on radio. I'm like, ah, we almost did. But always put it at the top. Not for radio. I will always respect that. Uh, let's see here. We have Ken. 
House resolution. Subject, Team Buck. Noticed one thing the media is leaving out of its coverage, and that is the proposed rule to allow questions from committee staff lawyers. Not quite fair. Yeah, you're right. They they have ruled that. They have changed it. But they're, they're cheating on the processes in every way that they can. Democrats, libs, you can't trust them. Can't trust the libs. Can't trust them. Uh, let's see. Next up here. Um, Don. The blah, blah, forgotten simple man is still a part of our nation and part of your following in your show as I pray for you. Um, I'm able to support the Freedom Hut. Uh, Okay. You never forget us. Years of your show, you almost always say something every day I look forward to. I'm still proud. Thank you, Don. I'm trying, man. Trying to make it the best usage of your time. Uh, Joe, uh, wait, no, this is from Doug. Hello, Buck. I heard your Joe Biden last week, and I have to say the foundational elements, not to mention the narrative, are dead on. Keep it up. Very funny. I did a Joe Biden last week. I didn't even realize that. Probably did, though. Sometimes it just happens. Also, thank you for your tweet on LaGuardia Airport. It has been silent in the NYC area on what a disaster the travel experience has been there. Finally, what's next on Syria, oil, Iraq, etc.? Go Team Buck! Uh, from Doug. Well, Doug, thanks, man. And, uh, yeah, I... I think LaGuardia is the worst airport in the country. (laughs) So there's that. Team, we'll have a great show tomorrow. Shields high.